I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, please. We're going to look from Ephesians chapter 4. And uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 20. So we're going to be basing our message on tonight. And as you can see from behind me, the message is entitled, Leaving Confusion Behind. Leaving it all behind and walking in the clarity of the revelation of God. And I want you to take this home with you, this statement. I'm going to read it out and I want you to say it after me in a moment. I'll read it out and then we say it again together loud and strong. In order to live right, you must believe right. Okay? Let's say it together. In order to live right, you must believe right. Meaning, I must believe right. Because you see, what we believe influences what we do. Even if we're not necessarily conscious of what's motivating us, when we look at what's going on inside us, we discover what we really, really believe, that is what we follow in our lives. So let's have a look at these verses, verses 17 to 20. Ephesians chapter 4. With the Lord's authority, I say this. Live no longer as the Gentiles do. That's those who don't yet know Christ, the unbelievers, those who are outside of the kingdom. Live as the Gentiles, do not live as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. I like this NLT translation. It pulls no punches. They are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. Finally, we get to some good news, but that isn't what you learned about Christ. Can I have an amen here? Amen. Last week we saw that God draws a red line and he says, don't live the way you used to live. Don't live the way unbelievers live. They have nothing to offer. That life has nothing to offer you but misery and failure and ultimately the loss of your eternal security. It's all going to go down the pan if you keep in that way. Very serious talk. But today I want to show you how really Gentiles or non-believers, what really motivates them. It's their wrong belief it's what they believe that drives them and for us as believers it's what we believe about Christ that drives us that's why we've got to make sure our thinking is absolutely right and in order because ideas have consequences and in order to live right you must believe right must be founded on the truth of the gospel of Jesus I want to take you back 800 years in your historical imagination to a period of history in England where the nation was on the brink of civil war. The date is the 15th of June, 
1215, 800 years ago, King John gathers together with the barons and leaders of England and the king sets his seal on a document, a document that was basically a peace treaty. That document has become the foundation of liberty, democratic freedom, human rights, virtually of every Western government and including governments outside of the West that are basing their nation on the same principles of freedom and equality. There is no way that the people who were co-signatories to that treaty would imagine in their wildest dreams that 800 years to the very day in the future, the four surviving documents known as the Magna Carta will be brought from their respective homes Two are stored in the British Library. One is stalled in, uh, installed in Salisbury Cathedral, the other in Lincoln Cathedral, and they'll be brought together and there would be national and international celebrations concerning what was actually symbolized in that document. They had no idea. And that document, what people don't know about it, they look at it and say, well, this is a good document for basing civil rights and, and uh, human rights. They had no idea how Jesus was involved in bringing it about. That side of the Magna Carta has been airbrushed out of our history. And in the recent celebrations last month, there was barely a mention that it was about Christian convictions. So the document was written by the then Archbishop of Canterbury. It was copied by monks, stored safely away and uh, carefully kept and protected throughout the centuries by officers of the Christian church. And at the bottom of it, it's not just the practical way in which monks and bishops and, and, and different priests and pastors were involved, but it was what the ideas, the ideas that were, 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 which were founded in that. I don't know how many lawyers or students of law we have today, but we know English common law is based on certain, a certain thing. Back in those days, we could call it divine justice. There was the conviction that there was a divine reason behind certain laws, and because these laws were so fair, so universal, they could be accepted as self-evident. It was the Christian gospel that was at the foundation of it all. And I tremble for Britain and tremble for Europe where we believe we can uphold the same standards of freedom and liberty while removing the foundations which made it possible. But before we talk about all that's happening in our nations and in Europe, let's examine what's happening in our lives because unless your life is founded upon the truth of Jesus Christ, it's very, very shaky. It doesn't matter to me or to God whether you build a most amazing life. It might be a stunning life above the surface. You might be building the tallest, most beautiful building of a life throughout the whole of your life. If I'm drawing a parallel between building and your life, if it rests on sand, it is going to collapse. But God has given us a rock to build our lives on, and his name is Jesus Christ. And so the teaching of Jesus is not just good ideas. God's word is not some helpful suggestions that you can throw around at the next focus group teaching. I want to tell you, truth is not an opinion poll. 
It doesn't come and go with fashion. If it's founded on the scripture, if it is founded on the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is enduring and lasting truth. So we've got to understand this. Ideas have consequences. What are you building your life on? I want you to examine your thinking. By this, I don't just mean intellectual thinking. I'm talking about the convictions of your heart, what you're holding in your heart, the truths, the things that you embrace from within, because your thinking will determine your behavior. There's no doubt about that. Your thinking will determine your behavior. You've got to get your thinking right before you learn to live right, because what you believe will determine what you do. And it's not just about what you do. One of the problems with this kind of talk, and we talk about here's a line, a red line, don't cross it. People only think of it in behavioral terms. I'm doing bad, I've got to stop doing bad, start doing good. But you can't do that without the power of God. You can't do that without the revelation of the Holy Spirit, without receiving the truth of the gospel in your heart. Because the human heart is so deceitful. Jeremiah prophesies about this, and I think it's such a true word. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, he says, The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? Wow, that's strong talk. Jesus, in a similar way, says, Your heart, until you are washed and cleansed and receive a new life from God, your heart, that old sinful heart, is like a polluted pool. And all that flows from it is polluted. Now don't worry, we're getting to some good news, but we need to know the facts about what's going on in our hearts without Christ. Jesus says, Matthew 15, verse 19, for from the heart, come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, slander. It comes from our hearts. These evil actions come from what's stored up in our hearts. So it really does matter what's going on inside. Examine what you believe. Examine what you are thinking, not just intellectually. Now, you know that we believe very strongly in this church that when you become a Christian, you embrace your brains. You don't kiss them goodbye. And that following Christ is not a mindless exercise. When you start thinking about who Jesus is and all the wonderful things that he's given us, you have to stretch your mind and stretch your imagination. It extends to the fullest extent of what is humanly possible to conceive. And even then we don't get to it and we say, God, thank you for your revelation. But I'm not just talking about intellectual understanding. I'm talking about the Bible use of the word mind, which is everything inside you. And this kind of crooked thinking always leads to crooked living. That's why Paul says, don't do any longer what the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They are hopelessly confused. There is, in the New King James Version, it talks about their thinking is futile. Futile thinking. In other words, you can have a thousand ideas, but they will never get you anywhere. Oh, they may look good, 
You may be able to build a fairly successful life on them. You might be able to say, well, I've got some good ways of, uh, of leading uh, our nation, and you can write some helpful suggestions to number 10 Downing Street, and so on and so on. And who knows, some of your ideas might even be taken up. I mean, everybody else is having a go. Why don't we just chuck in a few ideas? But the truth is, when you really look at it, it bears no lasting fruit. The only good thing is what God gives us in our hearts. And why are they so polluted? Basically because they are deceived and have believed the lie. The lie. In the book of Romans, Paul says, you know when you look at the creation, you see all the glorious things, even in our broken fallen and hurting world it's still a glorious place and there is a testimony to the God who made everything including you and whether you know it or not you are fearfully wonderfully made turn to the person next to you and say you scare me (laughs) you're so amazing you carry the image of God that's why These laws, such as assisted suicide for all the the compassionate issues that are attached to that, are all about eroding the sanctity of human life made in the image of God. And you are made to reflect His glory. You are made to have a relationship with Him, but it must be based on the truth. What is the lie? The lie is this. When you reject God and say, I don't need Him, I'm going to find my own way. The lie is this. You start to worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. You start to go for the blessing rather than the blesser. And this kind of approach has two faces, two main faces. It has a religious face, and it has a secular face. The religious face of this is, oh, wow, this is good. We've got a temple. If you go back to Jeremiah's day, 6th century Judah, Jerusalem was in its last death throes. Jeremiah was a lone voice saying, it's too late. You had your chance to repent, and you missed it. God has even told me not to pray for you anymore. It's a dumb deal. The city is going to be destroyed. And they said, oh, no, no, no. God isn't going to destroy the city. Will he destroy his holy temple? And in Jeremiah chapter 7, Jeremiah is standing outside the temple. Not Kensington temple, by the way. This is the real one back then. Standing outside and, and heard them saying, the temple, 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 temple. So he said, You people who keep going on about the temple, the temple, the temple, the temple, don't you know that God doesn't care a fig about a a building? It's not about the temple, it's about your heart. I want your heart. And you're not living right. You have my revelation, you've turned your back on me, and it's game over for you. A lot of people today put their faith in religion. And it's easy for me now, I could do it, Uh, I've studied it all at university. I could talk about Buddhism, Hinduism. I could talk about Shintoism. I could talk about all the different religions, Islam included, and, and show you how they're based on a lie. But we are not immune as Christians because we have our own version of the Christian religion. If I dress up good for Sunday, sing those high notes very well on a Sunday, look holy, and then uh, thank you, Jesus, for today, Sunday, goodbye, Jesus, to, it's the devil for the rest of the week. It's not just other religions that suffer from a religious spirit. 
But Jesus says, I want your heart. So that's the religious face, but there is also a secular face. And by the word secular, all I mean is life living, lived without God. Lots of ways of doing it. One of the most popular ways today is the new atheism. They turn their face away from the true and the living God, and they start with this premise. They can't prove it, but they start with it and say, there is no God, therefore. Therefore what? If there is no God, what does that mean? That's an idea, isn't it? It's an ideology, believing that there is no God. Okay, there is no God, but it has consequences. If there is no God, then all that exists is what we can see and touch. Matter, energy is all that there is. Natural forces, that's all that there is. And as Richard Dawkins, the high priest of the new atheism says, if you commit to this, understand that you are in the hands of blind, pitiless indifference. No love, no compassion, no purpose, no life after death. Richard Stephen Hawkins and Leonard Mladino wrote a book called The Grand Design. Isn't it interesting? When Christians want to use the word design of our world, well, we are struck out. You can't use that word in public. BBC would never allow that. But when atheists want to use the word grand design, oh, it's wonderful. Let's, let's put them on television. Let's talk about it. And this is what these two grand designers say in their book about heaven. No life after death. Heaven, <laughs> heaven is a fairy tale for those who are afraid of the dark. Oh, really? Thank God for people like John Lennox, Professor John Lennox. He's a professor of mathematics, Oxford University, one of the finest minds of our generation. He's a man also that is studied, he's an expert on the philosophy of science, and he's one of Britain's foremost Christian apologists. So they wrote to him and said, oh, these fellas are saying heaven is a fairy tale for those afraid of the dark. What do you say, Professor Lennox? He said, hmm, atheism is a delusion, a fairy tale for those who are afraid of the light. And it's interesting, in May 2011, Google, that wonderful company, you heard of Google? Thank God for the good things Google do. And I'll continue to Google even after this message. But they ha have a regular Google Zeitgeist meeting. Google Zeitgeist. Zeitgeist, what does that mean? Spirit of the age. So they call people together to discuss the contemporary philosophies. The, the dominant ideas of our age. And so, of course, they brought Mr. Stephen Hawking along. And by the way, I've got great respect for him, one of the finest, most brilliant scientists. The trouble is, don't go to him for advice about God. That's all I say. And so they said, Mr. Hawking, well, if what you say is true, then why are we here? So he says, if you like, you can call the laws of science God, but uh, you won't get any answer from them. And then they asked another question. Well, how should we live? Listen to his answer. It's interesting to me that atheists want to get rid of God, but still want to talk about values. And you may say, I'm insulting atheists. They have no values. I, of course they have values, but what do they base their values on? That's what I'm saying. So in reply to this question, how should we live? 
Well, we should seek the greatest value of our action. Good, that sounds great. But who determines the values of our action? Oh, well, I do. I determine. I make my own happiness. I create my own values. It's all subjective. You have yours, I have mine, but that's all we've got. That's all I've got. That's all there is. Anyway, I am my own master. That's what I'm after. Closed minds, closed hearts, and clenched fists defying God. You don't rule me. This is the true and original Invictus spirit. I don't know if you've heard the word Invictus. There was a movie called Invictus. Uh, starring the formidable Morgan Freeman, directed by Clint Eastwood, and starring also Matt Damon. I mean, you know, what's not to like about a movie like that? And the story is amazing. It's based on the true story about the rugby game, 1995, uh, in the World Cup, Rugby World, rugby World Cup, uh, and that, that match played with black and white players, it, was, it really united the nation. Absolutely amazing, and I, I don't speak against that because sport can unite a nation. We know that Prince Harry has also held, held his own Invictus Games, a way of bringing people who've been injured at war and service people together to compete and to find some, some healing and some acceptance after their trauma. Very significant and very important. But it's the name Invictus that I want to question today. It means unconquerable. Good. Okay. And to understand this, I want you to... Come with me in your imagination to 1875 into an infirmary in a remote corner of England. And as we visit this hospital ward, we stand before the bed of a young 26-year-old boy, man. He's suffered. He's had the most terrible suffering in early childhood, brought up in poverty, found it really hard, contracted as a young man, tuberculosis, one of the most lethal diseases back in the day. And as a result of complications, his leg is amputated. And, and the doctor says, you're going to lose the other leg. But a brilliant surgeon came and worked with him one painful operation after another, especially on his foot, until finally, after months of agony, they're able to save the other leg. And here, William Ernest Henley lies in his hospital bed and says, I'm not going to let this beat me. And so we see the triumph of the human spirit when he says, I've had a bad start in life. I'm 26 years of age, but I'm not going to let it affect me. I'm going to not allow my circumstances to break me. And there are some very powerful stories of people. It's nothing to do with God, but they have that capacity to rise in difficult circumstances. And I applaud it. But there's something better, and I'm coming to that. So he sits up in bed and pens what's become a very famous poem entitled Invictus, meaning unconquerable. Let me quote the first and the last verses of this. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, 
I thank whatever God's may be for my unconquerable soul. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Well, I will acknowledge the triumph of the human spirit, but it's a total abuse of the human spirit when you will say, shaking your fist at God, I am my own boss, I am my own master. That is the worst mistake you could ever make. We should say as believers, Jesus is the master of my destiny. He is the captain of my soul. He has made me more than a conqueror, not because of my human spirit and my human capacities, but because I've discovered the power of the Holy Spirit to transform my life. And I can say right now, I'm more than a conqueror through Christ who loves me. And so as we move on, we discover that this lie that says, I am my own boss, I live as I like, I do as I like. What actually happens when you put God out of your life? Not only do you exclude yourself from the life he gives, but things become very, very confused. G.K. Chesterton said, when a man stops believing in God, he doesn't then believe in nothing, he believes in anything. That quotation from G.K. Chesterton, who, was, uh, who died in 1903, oh, no, he, he, he died much later, but he was publishing in the early 1920s a series of detective novels called the Father Brown series. I believe some of it's been made into television. And in that, as a philosopher, G.K. Chesterton has his character say two things, and you put those two things together and you justify that quote. When a man stops believing in God, he doesn't then believe in nothing, he believes in anything. And that's exactly what we see today. We see people trying to substitute the lie for a truth. They try to substitute going their own way for going God's way. They say, I'm going to do it my way. It's not about you, God, in any way. What do I owe you? And this kind of rebellion leads to all kinds of confusion and you, you come into bondage, a real bondage from which there is no escape until you come back and surrender your life to God. Once you are cut off from God, you are cut off from all that is good. And now you desperately try to fill your life with substitutes for God. You start looking for satisfaction and well-being in anything and everything apart from God. And the Bible has a word for that desire. It's lust and it's impure. It may be religious lust. It may be immoral lust. Whatever it is, if it is lusting after the creation rather than God, it's lust that will destroy you. But I thank God for that little last bit in verse 20. But, oh, thank God. If it had been left there, we'd be hopeless, yes? But God butts in. But that isn't what you learned about Christ. 
Now there's the big difference. It goes on in verse 21 to say, since you have heard about Jesus Christ and have learned the truth that comes from him. He couldn't put it any other way if he wanted to say this, which he is saying, you've come out of confusion, rescued from darkness, brought into the glorious light, no longer guessing, left your own devices, making your own mind up about things without any information. You're not an expert in life and living. God made you. He knows best. And then the Apostle Paul says, you have learned Christ. Do you know that's what a Christian is? Somebody who has learned and is learning Christ. There is a word for that. It's called discipleship. It's following Christ. To be taught by example and following that example. That's why in this church we don't just preach to you. We open up the doors for you to fellowship, to build community. We have cell groups meeting all over London where you can get together and encourage one another and disciple one another in the faith so that as I need you to speak to me and you need me to speak to you, together we grow to become like Jesus because we have one Lord, one Master, and we're following Him. He is our Lord and we are his disciples. Then the Apostle Paul says, you've learned to listen to Christ. Listen. Listen doesn't mean just to hear. It means to receive. To receive what you've learned from God's revelation. To take it deep inside of you. This message has really gone out to all of the cell leaders with questions that you can ask one another and you can share together how to put this message into practice in your life. You hear the word. You become hearers of the word. You get together and work it out in your life and say, help me, I'm facing this. Help me, I'm facing that. Pray for me, this is what's going on. And together, we build one another up to become doers of the word. Then it goes on to say, being shaped to become like Christ. And that's the word truth, which is actually the word teaching. Christian teaching is not uh, at its best. It's not what I think, not what you think. It's what God says. God's teaching, Christian teaching, to be taught in a way that shapes your life. Taught in a way, doctrine is not just something that you rehearse in your head or recite like a creed, as good as those things might be. You receive the teaching and you let it shape its life, shape your life. And when you follow that teaching, we're going to pick this up at this point next week. When you follow that teaching, you discover on the inside of you something that you never knew was there. It's a capacity, a Holy Spirit power, a passion for Jesus. And that's who you really are. If you have been born again, if you've been taken out of darkness into light, you come to understand that there is a God, all-powerful, all-loving, personal God, who made you and everything else around you. And that God is active in this world. He has a purpose. He's working it out in your life right now as I speak. The good things and even the things that we don't think so God are so good. God is working everything together for your good and for his glory. And that is an ultimate purpose in which he's going to make all things new. And he begins with you. 
He begins not just on the outside, he begins on the inside. He makes you a new creature, a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. Everyone is in Christ. Anyone is in Christ is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Everything has become new. He begins that new creation in you. The Bible calls it being born again. And he doesn't stop there. That begins to work out in your life. And your life begins to change. And you become transformed and formed into the image of Jesus Christ. Your inner world begins to reflect the inner world of Jesus. It begins to change what you do. Because what you believe will affect what you do. And you You can't live right until you believe right. But when you start to believe right, it begins to show and produce fruit in your life. And that new creation work continues quietly, silently, behind the scenes. But when the moment is right, Jesus will return to this earth and he will make a new heaven and a new earth where everything becomes new. That's the plan and program we are on. And it all happens because Jesus came. To where we are. He came himself to bring us back to God. He died on the cross to set us free from sin. Rose again from the dead to show us what our future and our destiny is. And in the meantime, he sends his Holy Spirit into our hearts to change us from within. Every head bowed, every eye closed right now. Please, nobody moving around right now. I want to pray for you tonight. And you know, I am speaking in simple but very clear words to call God's people back to the gospel and its truth. No messing, no messing with man-made religion. No messing with our personal preferences. No messing with our own ideas. Submitting them to God. And it's not mindless, because as I said, to grapple with God's revelation, it requires wisdom, the revelation of the Holy Spirit. It requires everything that God inspires within you. It's not a lazy way at all but it's the right way. And I call you back, every single one of you, to the heart of the gospel, to the heart of Jesus, to the truth of Jesus Christ. Because if we continue to allow our lives to be built on error and don't confront sin and the ideas that we hold that leads us into it, there is no hope for the church. Not in Britain. Not anywhere. But that is not our destiny. God is calling us back to the truth of the gospel. And so with that in mind, we're going to pray for you. And as we do this, I want to throw out an invitation. I nearly said a lifeline. But it is a lifeline. I am a master scuba diver. I am a dive instructor. I'm also a rescue diver. I've had to rescue people, both in exercises and in reality. And one of the things you do when somebody is struggling is you throw them a lifeline. And that's a lifeline tonight of salvation for you. You'll be drowned in your own sea of ignorance 
your own sea of rebellion unless you grab this lifeline. And it's a lifeline drawn by the blood of Jesus Christ. 2,000 years ago on the cross, Jesus died to make it possible. God extended a lifeline to you. And all you have to do is grab it. That's it. You don't change. You grab it. Don't dress yourself. You don't rescue yourself. You don't say, well, wait till I'm in the shallow water. Then you can rescue me. No, you need him now. Don't wait for things to get worse. It's bad enough right now without Christ. Grab that lifeline. It's an invitation that comes from God himself to put your faith and trust in Jesus just as sure as if he extended his hand towards you now and you took it and he pulled you up out of your darkness into his light, out of your condition, into his kingdom. It's a choice you must make. I'm going to pray and invite people to make that choice tonight. And here it is. If you know that you're not saved, in other words, if you died tonight, you'd have no idea where you'd be going, or maybe you're not sure about it, this prayer is for you. Because once you start to believe right and head in the right direction, everything else begins to work out the way it should. But here's the first thing. You've got to make sure you belong to him. And that's simply by saying yes to his invitation. If tonight you want to say yes to his invitation, I'm going to pray for you. I've also something to give you. People are standing out right now ready to hand out this little pack moving forward. It's written just for you. But I need to know who you are so I can pray for you and they can come to you. Very, very simple. Here it is. If you want Christ in your life and you're not sure about what it means to be a Christian or you're not sure that you are a Christian, not sure that if you die tonight you'd go to heaven, well, everybody else, eyes closed, head bowed, I want you to lift your hand straight in the air and say, yes, that's me. I need Jesus. Who's going to be the first to lift the hand and say, yes, to Jesus tonight? Father, we want you to bring people, more and more people, out of the darkness and bondage of sin. They can begin to walk that wonderful walk and adventure of life with Christ. Thank you, Jesus. Let's give... Jesus and praise for these, these two people. That's wonderful. And let's just remain before the Lord in an attitude of prayer. I believe there are people here tonight who are struggling in their Christian faith. And if you've been encouraged tonight, I'm very grateful to the Holy Spirit. But some people are struggling. They say, yes, I know the theory, but there's something wrong. I just don't know how to break free. I don't know how to walk in victory. I don't know how to live in this wonderful abundant life and you feel yourself so oppressed and held back and pulled down I want to pray for you and others want to pray for you please don't feel embarrassed or ashamed in any way 
because every single one of us at one stage in our lives as Christians has needed a prayer like this. But if that's you saying, you know, I'm still struggling. I, something is holding me back. Something is gripping me. I'm I just still so confused in so many areas. I want to pray for you right now. Would you stand up, all of you, wherever you are. Let me pray for you publicly, everybody together. Just stand up right now. And you're saying, yes, there's some confusion. Because I want to deal with that spirit of confusion. Because there's a spirit of darkness that operates. There's far more people. Don't resist the Holy Spirit. Far more people. Far more people. Come on, people. Let the Holy Spirit. Don't be proud. Don't hold back. What are you gonna what are you gonna risk? Nothing. God can set you free tonight in certain ways. Thank you. There are people standing all over the place. God bless you. You know what? I believe that if people had really heard the Holy Spirit tonight, nearly everybody would be on their feet. So many of you assume it's all okay, but I tell you something, stuff is happening in our generation where what we thought was okay is not okay. Pray that God will work in your hearts as well. Father, in the name of Jesus, I lovingly lift up these people who have graciously surrendered to the prompting of the Holy Spirit that says, you know what, it's not okay. I'm struggling. There's confusion, there's bondage, and I just know I need something fresh from God. So I pray in the name of Jesus that you would release them into the liberty of life in the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name.